It's going to be found in 1 John chapter 4, starting with verse 13. By this we know that we abide in him and he in us, because he has given us of his spirit. And we have seen and testified that the Father has sent his Son to be the Savior of the world. Whoever confesses that Jesus is the Son of God, God abides in him and he in God. So we have come to know and to believe the love that God has for us. God is love. And whoever abides in love abides in God. And God abides in him. By this is love perfected with us. So that we may have confidence for the day of judgment. Because as he is, so also are we in this world. There is no fear in love. But perfect love casts out fear. For fear has to do with punishment. And whoever fears has not been perfected in love. We love because he first loved us. If anyone says, I love God and hates his brother, he is a liar. For he who does not love his brother whom he has seen cannot love God whom he has not seen. And this commandment we have from him, whoever loves God must also love his brother. God, you may be seated. Where's your home? I don't mean your address, but your home. Robert Frost said, home is where when you have to go there, they have to take you in. Maybe you've heard this phrase, home is where the heart is. I had no idea how old that saying was until I started kind of tracking it down. It's attributed to uh, Pliny the Elder, who lived during the time of Jesus Christ, who was a naval officer in the Roman um, army, whose writings we have today. But where is your home, Christian? We have songs that say, heaven is my home. That will be a place where we will dwell for a time until the new heavens and the new earth and the new Jerusalem. But heaven is not heaven because it's a place where suffering is a memory. Heaven is not heaven because it's a place where there is enjoyment and things like that. Heaven is heaven because Emmanuel, God with us. Heaven is heaven because we abide in the Lord. We dwell with him. That will be, um, heaven, uh, heaven is heaven because Emmanuel, God with us. In today's scripture that Becca just read, John will talk about the result of abiding, of dwelling with Christ, is dwelling in his love. If home is where the heart is, then your home is in the love of Christ. Say that again. Your home is in the love of Christ. I once did a trivia game with teenagers, and I called it uh, misquoted quotes. So it's quotes that, the misquotation has become more popular than the actual quotation. And one of those, and the teenagers got like just furious because they couldn't understand what I was talking about. I was like, you think this quote is this, but it's not. It's a misquotation. So here's one. Darth Vader never says, Luke, I am your father. Doesn't say it. You know, what happens is uh, he says, you know, did Obi-Wan, some of the fact of, did Obi-Wan ever tell you about your father? And Luke's like, he told me enough. He told me you killed him. That's my Luke Skywalker voice. And Darth Vader doesn't say, Luke, I am your father. He says, no, I am your father. It's a misquoted quote. 
In the scripture Becca just read, probably no verse in the entire scripture is more misquoted than verse 18, because most of the time when people quote this, they will say perfect love drives out all fear. Worse than even being misquoted, it's taken out of context. I remember being a youth pastor, and this girl was afraid to come out down out of this tree that she had somehow gotten in. She was afraid of heights, yet she could climb a tree, whatever. So she's afraid to come down, and all of her friends are, are quoting this verse, misquoting this verse to her. Perfect love drives out all fear. You can come down. It's like, that's not the type of fear this is talking about. It's not, you know, other verses that we just kind of cherry-pick to proof text what we want to believe. We normally just kind of take the whole quote, but this one, we actually take it out of context of the very verse it is in, because there is a type of fear this is talking about. Not only is verse 18 misquoted, it's also taken out of context within its very verse. Most of the time, we want a proof text um, for our own thoughts. We will use a whole verse um, out of context with the rest of the scripture. But verse 18 is special because it's just a phrase within the verse. That perfect love casts out fear. There is a specific kind of fear the author, the Holy Spirit, is talking about. So what fear are we talking about here? H.P. Lovecraft is often cited as the father, and a father of cosmic horror. And he had this to say, The oldest and strongest emotion of mankind is fear. And the oldest and strongest kind of fear is fear of the unknown. Well, H.P. Lovecraft is absolutely wrong. Wrong in every aspect. It is not an unknown fear that's the oldest fear in mankind. Not that the unknown isn't something that is fearful, but it's not the oldest fear. Before Adam and Eve ate from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, they had no fear, yet everything to them was unknown. They had not eaten from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, so they did not have knowledge of good and evil, yet they had no fear. But the first instance where we have the word fear in the Bible itself comes in verse 10 of chapter 3 of Genesis. And he said, I heard the sound of you in the garden, and I was afraid because I was naked and I hid myself. The oldest fear isn't a fear of the unknown, but fear of the known. Thomas Jefferson said, I tremble for my country when I reflect that God is just and that his justice cannot sleep forever. The greatest fear, the primeval fear of all of mankind is judgment. When the bill comes due, can I pay it? Last year, I got to write for the paper on Halloween, and I wrote this article, and I got a lot of traction, and a lot of people commented on it. I said, something to really be afraid of. I talked about the greatest fear of mankind is judgment. How do you know when you cross from this veil of tears, you'll be welcome in the home of the righteous, in the, holy, in the home of the holy? Is that you? Do you have assurance of your salvation? Or is there a fear? And that is the fear verse 18 is talking about. You know, you have come to know Christ. For those of you who have come to know Christ, or rather are known by Christ, you should not have this fear. Unfortunately, though, many believers do have this fear. Many genuine believers whose destiny is in heaven have a fear of judgment. And John gets to the very heart of why that is. It's because you've not been perfected in love. It's a fun sermon because I'm, 
I'm, I'm explaining a verse now. I'm going to explain it later too. But it's the context of 1 John that gives us the understanding of what this perfect love is that drives out what kind of fear. It is the prime fear. In this section, John will write about abiding, dwelling in the love of God. Being made perfect or complete in his love casts out fear. Last week, verse 7 through 12, we have the command that we who are loved should love. This week, Christ's love, it's what Christ's love in us produces in us. Because one, love confesses. Two, love is fearless. And three, love is contagious. My first point this morning from verses 13 through 15, love confesses. Verse 13 is connecting two thoughts. By this we know. What do we know? That God abides in us and that we have his love and it is perfected in us. That we love each other. We know this because he has given us his Holy Spirit. Do not confuse the indwelling of the Holy Spirit with the baptism of the Holy Spirit. At salvation, you are indwelt with the Holy Spirit. Before Pentecost, Jesus Christ breathes, the resurrected Jesus Christ breathes on his disciples and says, receive the Holy Spirit. So the Holy Spirit indwelt them. The baptism of the Holy Spirit is different. Every believer has the indwelling Holy Spirit inside of them. It is the spirit that cries out, Abba, Father. It is this spirit, is the spirit of adoption into God's family. By this we know that we we abide in him and he in us because he has given us his spirit. That is how we know we abide in him and he in us. You know, abiding in him is not like we are trying to pin him down. He wants to get away and we got to claw onto him. No, he abides in us. So let us abide in him. In the Old Testament, in Haggai and Isaiah, God will ask the people, he said, you've made these great homes. Where's the home you will build for me? He'll say, heaven, heaven is my home, earth is my footstool, where will my resting place be? And the New Testament, God answers that for us because he sends his son, who is Emmanuel, God with us. So every believer at salvation says to God, come here, make me your resting place. We didn't realize how the audacity we had when we came to the throne of grace because the Holy Spirit did that part for us. His love is perfected in us. Last week, we ended in verse 12. That spoke of God's love being perfected in us. The word in the original language is teleio. It means complete. When we have this idea of perfection in the English, we think of something that is flawed on the journey of becoming unflawed. In the Greek, teleio, which is where we get, for instance, telephone, it's more of like you've completed the task given to you. It's not that any part in the task is necessarily perfect or imperfect. It's that you've completed this task. So God's love, teleio, in you, is completed when you love each other. That is the perfected love of God in you. It is not that any part of God's love is flawed. It's that it is complete. It has done its mission when you love each other. It is meant to be shared. Are you sharing the love of Christ with other believers? You know, a lot of times when we think about sharing the love of Christ, we think with unbelievers in evangelism. Excellent. We should be passionate about evangelism. We're Pentecostals. 
Pentecost was about the harvest. We should be about the harvest, bringing in souls. Absolutely. But right here, we have our relationship with each other. And we are to share the love of Christ amongst each other. That every opportunity we have to serve one another, every opportunity we have to love one another, we should take it because that means the love of God is being perfected in us. It means that he dwells in us. It is the example of God's love being dwelt in us. John, his gospel, records words that Jesus spoke to him. Now, the epistles are so important. Some people want to try to throw the epistles out. They're like, I'm, a, I'm just a red-letter Christian. Well, John, who wrote this letter, also wrote the gospel of John. Jesus says that he taught in parables so that people would not understand. So we have the epistles explaining to us the ministry of Christ. You want to throw those out? You're not going to understand the ministry of Christ. We need, to, we need to engage in them, let them work inside of us. Because John is drawing from the very words of Christ in John's gospel, chapter 15, verse 9. This is what Jesus tells us. As the Father has loved me, so I love you. Abide in my love. Abide's kind of an old word. We don't use much. I mean, I assume you don't use it. Maybe you do. You're like, you're very old-fashioned. And they're like, I abide at, I'm not going to tell you my address, but I have an address here in Dubuque. And I, in Algona, sorry. In Algona. It means where you dwell, where your home is. That's why I started with this. Where is your home, dear believer? Make your home in his love. He dwells in you. The Holy Spirit, God, has made you his dwelling place, his resting place. Dwell in him. My home is in the love of Christ. Verse 14. And we have seen and testified that the Father has sent the Son to be the Savior of the world. John talking about the we here, he's talking about the apostles. So John, once again, him and other New Testament writers will say this, like Paul the Apostle, for instance, in Galatians chapter 2, in Galatians chapter 1, sorry. Where not the authority our testimony is. Where not the authority our testimony is. It is not, we cannot go back and change our testimony because we have told you what we have seen, what we have experienced, what we have heard with what we have heard with our ears, and we are now testifying this. The we here is John, that John is referring to, is he and the other apostles. John, once again, and not just him, makes the point that the testimony is the authority and not themselves. They were eyewitnesses, but you are witnesses too. A witness in court tells, gives a testimony of what they have seen and what they have heard of Jesus Christ. The Father has sent the Son to be the Savior of the world. That's the testimony. Right before this, in, in uh, verse 1 of chapter 4, John will say that not to believe every spirit, but every spirit whose testimony is that Jesus Christ has come in the flesh. Just to give a little review of that, that does not mean, I agree that Jesus Christ existed. He was a good guy one day. That is what people in John's day were saying, and that the Spirit of Christ came upon him in his baptism, and John is fighting against that. That's why he says, Jesus Christ, God became flesh, not flesh became God. Huge difference. Huge difference. Confess. The word confess here, how does one dwell in Christ's love? How does God dwell in them? Verse 15, whoever confesses that Jesus is the Son of God. The word confess here is the word homologos. Homo meaning same as opposed to hetero, which means different. 
Logos, the word. In the beginning was the word. Jesus Christ is the logos. It's where we get the English word logic. We have the same word. We speak the same as. We have the same logic of God, that God has sent his son into the world to be the savior of the world. We speak the same as. It's it's not so much as an admitting a fact, but an outpouring of the heart that is in line with God's heart. Those who don't speak the same do not have the Father, they do not have the Son, and they certainly do not have the Holy Spirit, despite whatever claims they may try to make. Howard Marshall says, to acknowledge that Jesus is the Son of God is not simply to make a statement about his metaphysical status, but to express obedient trust in the one who possesses such a status. James Montgomery Boyce said, to believe in Christ and to love the brethren are not conditions by which we may dwell in God, but rather the evidence of the fact that God has already taken possession of our lives to make this possible. So first, love confesses. Now I know that the love of God is in you. You confess that Jesus Christ is the Son of God, and he has come into this world. I said before, as I've been teaching throughout First John, that John has this three-legged stools about genuine believers. They believe the right things about Jesus. They live righteously, and they love other believers. And you'll see him weave all of these into each point as well. It's not one or the other. You lose one, the stool falls over. You have to have all three. Love is fearless. Verse 16 through 18. How do people respond to God's love? This is from Pastor David Gusick. People respond to God's love differently. Some people respond with a sense of self-superiority. I'm so great, even God loves me. This is what happens when we try to preach the gospel out of context. And we're just like a sounding board, like touched by an angel in the 90s. God loves you. Oh, of course God loves me. I'm awesome. Why shouldn't God love me? That's how some people respond to God's love because they don't understand the context. But we already know the context from earlier in 1 John. This is love. That God sent his son to die for us, to be a propitiation for our sins. This is love. It's not nebulous. We don't get to decide what love is. It's tender feelings towards people. It's this chemical in your brain. No, this is love. When we don't, Tell people the context, which is God had to die for you because your sins were that awful. I don't care if all you ever did was just white lies. It is reprehensible to God. Reprehensible to the point he'll throw you in hell and he is righteous and just for doing it. The person who doesn't know that and they they understand God's love, they do it in a self-superiority way where they're like, I'm so great, God must love me. Some respond with doubt. Yeah, God loves other people, but not me. I don't know if I ever hear this so much, but it's that idea of like, God, can God really love even me? This is the way I normally hear it. Pastor, I'm not a church person. You don't know what I've done. I don't, I don't fit with the people of God. And it's like, yes, you do. Are you not a sinner? We're all sinners here. I mean, you're here today and you're like, maybe you're actually watching at home and you're like, I can't come in there. Everyone's going to gossip about me, talk about my, my, my business and all these things. Guess what? Everybody here is an example of God's grace. And if you could know what God has saved me from, you wouldn't have such a high opinion of me. 
but you have a really high opinion of my God. And that's what I want above all things. Some respond with doubt. Can God, even, can God really love even me? Some respond with wickedness. This was the problem in John's day. People were saying, God loves me so I can do what I want. I can sin so that grace may be increased. On one of the seasons of The Bachelorette, I don't watch it. I just saw this online and, and took a note of the quote. The, the Bachelorette said, I had sex and God still loved me. It wasn't so much like God, God forgave me no matter what I, I mean, no matter my past life and now I want to live righteously. It's, no, I can do what I want and God still likes me. It's, it's using the grace of God as a, as a license for sin. To break God's heart and say, you should love that God. That is not the heart of somebody who has known true forgiveness, who has experienced God's love. God wants us to respond by knowing, by experience, and believing the love God has for us. It is when we are broken by God's law, when we understand that God didn't have to love me, he chose to love me. To experience it, to get our teeth into it, to realize that God's love is the greatest thing in all the universe, but he sheds his love on me. Being saved is believing that love. Verse 16. So that we have come to know and to believe the love that God has for us. God is love. And whoever abides in love abides in God. And God abides in him. Believing God's love for you and for others. God's love produces love in you for others. This isn't a requirement in order to be saved, but the result of the saving work of Jesus Christ. We are abiding in him. Verse 16 tells us once again, to abide in his love is a, to abide in his love is to abide in God. The circle of love is complete when this happens. It's not an action as much as it is surrendering, a homecoming. It's why John could have joy on Patmos. Why Paul could have joy, he could be content in his sufferings, and why the disciples, having been beaten half to death, skipped out of the jail with joy for being seen as worthy to suffer for Christ. Their home was in the love of God. Verse 17 is all about confidence. Verse 17, by this, by, by this is love perfected in us, so that we may have confidence for the day of judgment, because as he is also because he is also, also, we are in this world. Confidence on the day of judgment. That's what I was talking about before. This is the context of verse 18. We haven't gotten to 18 yet. This is the fear we're talking about. The confidence on the day of judgment. I imagine if right now we had a huge earthquake, you started seeing the ceiling start caving in. What would you, what would you think? Would you be thinking, I hope I'm right with God. That's not having confidence for the day of judgment. Last night I had a dream. It wasn't a prophetic dream, so don't worry. But I had a dream like the, the moon exploded. The world was going to be destroyed. And here's the crazy thing. I had incredible joy because I was going to get to be with Jesus. And then I woke up kind of disappointed. <laughs> That's the confidence we have that on the day of judgment, don't take that for granted. Very, very, very few people have this. Even believers 
John's going to talk about the problem, that there are believers. They don't have this confidence. And John will talk about in chapter 5, I write this so that you may know of your salvation. You know how many people, they're like, all right, do you know if you're going to heaven? They'll say, nobody knows. Yes, they do. John says so. You can have assurance of salvation. You can know. You can have confidence on the day of judgment. You're not like, okay, which line am I in? I need to be in the right. I need to be in the right line because that's where the sheep are and the goats are on the left. No, I can have confidence on the day of judgment that I know that the finished work of Jesus Christ has produced in me salvation. This is a confidence that flows into every aspect of our life. I talked before, I mean, this is not, verse 18 is not a verse that helps you when you're scared of spiders or clowns. Sorry, it's not going to help you with that. But it does give us confidence because what can truly happen to you? You can die, but everybody dies. I don't care whether, whether you're scared of that or not. You're going to die one day or you're going to be raptured, one of the two. But you can have confidence what happens afterwards. So many people say that that doesn't exist, but John would disagree with them wholeheartedly. No, we can have confidence on the day of judgment. Verse 18 is how we have that confidence. Not wondering, am I good enough, righteous enough, spiritual enough? You can have that kind of confidence. And if you don't, I know why. Some of you I know, some of you I don't. If you're online, I, I don't even know you. But I know why you don't have confidence for the day of judgment. Let me tell you about, let me talk about fear and fear for a second here. There's different types of fear in the Bible. If you're afraid of judgment, it's because you have not been perfected in love. What about the many passages of Old Testament and the New Testament, such as Ecclesiastes 12, 13, and 1 Peter 2, 17, which tells us that we should fear God? The fear John writes here is not the appropriate reverence you should have for the creator and maker of all things, our God and Savior and our Lord Jesus Christ. No, it's a fear that involves torment. Are you afraid of burning in hell? It's an agonizing kind of fear that robs our soul of all joy and confidence before God. It is a fear that is the opposite of the boldness we should have on the day of judgment. So why do you fear judgment? One, you are genuinely not saved. Some people, they'll, they'll come to me and they, they want me to affirm them in, in, in their walk. And, but the first thing I'm going to check out, are you really saved? You may have said a prayer at one time, did some other religious ceremony, but unless you have taken up the cross and followed him, died to your old nature, alive in the new nature, you are not saved. So maybe you have a fear of judgment because genuinely you are not saved. So I say to you today, Fall upon the mercies of Jesus Christ. Repent and believe. We're so worried of using church terms that those words right here, repent and have faith, we try to just kind of take those out of all evangelism, but that is what we're told in Scripture. Repent. Change from one direction to another. That's what that means. It means a change of mind. But it's not simply changing your opinion. No, it's changing the very way you think on things. Loving the righteousness you once ignored, hating the sin you once loved. Have faith. Believe. Believe like you're jumping out of a plane that the parachute will hold you up. Repent and believe on the Lord Jesus Christ today and you will be saved. Here is the second reason why you fear judgment. Two, you have an overactive conscience. 
1 John 3.10 tells us that sometimes our hearts condemn us, but God is greater than our hearts. It's one of my favorite lines in 1 John. Because so, much, so, much, so many times with our relationship with Christ, we based it on our feelings, on our hearts. But God is greater than our hearts. Thank you, Jesus. Because depend on what I've eaten, how much I've slept, what's going on in my life, my heart goes one way or another, but God's greater than my heart. You may have an overactive conscience, which is not necessarily a bad thing, but our life in Christ is not based on our feelings. It's based on the finished work of Jesus Christ. This is something sometimes we need to ask those around us, those who know us best. We need to ask them, am I growing in holiness? My brother Brent's watching. I hope you don't mind me sharing this. I remember one time, my, my, my brother, he was, he was struggling with some things. And I told him, I just told him, Brent, I see you growing in righteousness. Things that would have that would have made you explode last year, don't. That's the Holy Spirit's work in you. Sometimes we need to ask the people around us, am I growing in righteousness? Am I loving the family of God? Am I seeking to know Christ better? You might be surprised, especially if they're honest people, what they might say to you. Or they may say, no, no, you've really backslidden this past year. That's also a great wake-up call for you. What wonderful friends to have. Here's the third one. And this is what John is talking about here in verse 18. There is no fear in love, but perfect love casts out fear. For fear has to do with punishment. And whoever fears has not been perfected in love. You are having a hard time loving other believers. This is something we don't talk about much. You have an unloving attitude. It's going to affect your assurance of salvation. I mentioned uh, last week the testimony of Corey Ten Boone. Corey Ten Boom, she was a Holocaust survivor. She wrote a book called The Hiding Place. When she was on the tour or whatever, she was speaking in a church, a man comes up to her. He was one of the guards at the concentration camp, and she remembered how brutal he was to her sister. And he tells her, God has saved me, and I had asked him for me to be able to ask for forgiveness from one of my victims. Will you forgive me? I can't imagine how I would react in that situation. I know how Corey reacted, and Corey was not explaining 1 John 4.18 here, but she really was explaining 1 John 4.18 here. She came face to face with one of the guards of the concentration camp she was at. He had been saved by God and was now a brother in the faith and was asking for forgiveness. One thing Corey said was that when she, when she said in her heart that she could not forgive him, she felt in her heart that she was not forgiven. Because Jesus said in the Lord's Prayer, forgive us our debts as we forgive those who, our debtors. That if we will not forgive, we are not forgiven. She said she knew she couldn't forgive him, but she remembered then Romans 5.5. 5. You know, one of the things that maybe we put too much of an emphasis on is getting a word from the Lord. God has already spoken. Hide it in your heart so that when these things come, the Holy Spirit brings it forward. Romans 5.5, 5, God's love has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit. She knew she couldn't forgive him, and because she couldn't forgive him, her conscience was saying, are you even saved? This is why you don't have assurance of salvation, because your conscience is saying, this is not how a Christian behaves. A Christian loves. A Christian forgives. You shouldn't be known by the rivalries and the feuds you have in your life. That is not 
how a Christian walks, how a believer in the love of Jesus Christ walks. She says she grabbed his hand. She said that it was like she could feel God's love stream from her arms. You remember last week I talked about the circle of God's love? It starts within the Godhead. God God the Father sends his Son to earth, dies on a cross, is resurrected by the Father, goes to the Father, the Holy Spirit comes down, is implanted in our hearts, and then we love each other. That is love being completed, being perfected. And when you interrupt that flow, you lose the assurance of salvation. It's there. You don't know it, though, because you have decided not to love. She said she grabbed his hand and said it was like she could feel God's love stream from her arms. You've never touched so the ocean of God's love. You say, I can't forgive. No, you can't but you have not touched the oceans of God's love. God's love is complete or perfect when we love each other. If you don't, you have not been perfected in his love, and of course you fear. Perfect love will drive that out. You'll have the assurance of salvation when you decide, I'm going to love that person. The next part here, love is contagious. I should really say, this is love being tested. We can say, I love God, I love people, but when we say, I love Alan. Sorry, Alan, I'm going to pick on you. Alan's a real human being. I know Alan. I know things about Alan. I know good things, I know bad things. And I choose to love. He chooses to love me in the body of Christ. Verses 19 to the end of the chapter, love is contagious. The origin of love is in verse 19. We love because he first loved us. We talk a lot about our love for God, but that's nothing to brag about. He, we only love because he first loved us. You did not decide to love God on your, own, on your own. You loved him because he first loved you. He originates our love. Love that, that's not, that does not come from God is a tainted love. I am unable to love you without his love. You know, observant Jews to this day, they will recite this prayer morning and evening It's the Shema Yisrael. It is what Jesus quoted when he was asked the most important commandment. Hear, O Israel, the Lord your God is one. You should love the Lord your God with all of your heart, with all of your soul, and with all of your strength. Every morning and every evening, they pray this prayer. And this prayer is impossible without God's loving you first. The next verse, verse 20. Um, No, sorry, still in verse 19 right here. Verse 19, we love because he first loved us is only seven words in the English, seven words in the Greek, and it is the centerpiece of the Christian life. We love because he first loved us. We love him because he first loved us. We love each other because because he first loved us. At the beginning of my sermon last week, we started with beloved, love. Those who are loved now love. These seven words, seven words in the Greek and the English, C.H. Spurgeon, who's known in history as the Prince of Preachers, preached on these seven verses eight sermons. By God's grace, I, I want to do that too. We love God because he first loved us. We love others, especially those who belong to the household of God, because he first loved us. Verse 20 puts 
the rubber to the road because it talks about specifically verse 20 right here. If anyone says, I love God and hates his brother, he is a liar. For he who does not love his brother whom he has seen cannot love God whom he has not seen. How many people will say, I love God? And many people will say, I love people, but they don't love individuals. That's why I mentioned Alan right here. When you come to church, like if you just do church online, you don't have to deal with people. So you don't get the blessing either. You don't experience the perfect love of God, the completed love of God, because you are not struggling with others. You have nothing to forgive because you don't interact with anybody. I was online on a, on a Facebook group, and I just saw somebody post, and it really just kind of grieved my heart for them, because they're like, I'm not going to go to church because everybody there is judgmental. Like, I'm sure they got room for another judgmental person. You can come any time. So I'm like, you know, your, your, your statement right here is pretty judgmental, right? There are a bunch of hypocrites there. There's room for one more. Come on. <laughs> Show up. Experience the perfected love of God. We love in forgiveness. We love when we find opportunities to love one another. Not just, most people just want to love in thought and in word. Like, I love people in general. Some people will say, I would die for people in general. But actually dealing with an individual not my thing. It has to be our thing. We love in deed and in truth. We love people, not the concept of people. So many people are very passionate about feeding the poor, but they will never step foot in, in a food kitchen. That's a sad deal. It's not real. It's an ideology, but the love of God, the perfect, perfected love of God, causes us to look for opportunities to love one another to visit one another when we are sick, to sing the hymns together, to pray over each other. I talked about forgiving one another, but there's so many other opportunities to love one another in the church. We see a need to meet that need. To bear one another's burdens in this way fulfill the law of Christ. And that's what verse 21 right here. And this command we have from him, whoever loves God must also love his brother. Sometimes we kind of get this prideful attitude of like, well, I love God, but I just, don't, I, just don't, I just don't love organized religion. That's what people say. I don't love organized religion. We don't really love anything then. You love this concept in your head that doesn't really exist. People exist. And loving people is all the good and all the bad. And choosing anyway. And Christ, who forgave the very people driving the nails into his hands, who forgave Paul, who was hunting his children, he causes us to love each other as well. It's real love. A person can know God's word forward and backward, never miss a service, pray fervently, and even demonstrate the gifts of the Spirit. If that's not all done in love, it's the offering of Cain. It's a fruit of the hands, a fruit of the flesh. All that is done in love is the fruit of the Spirit. Worship team, would you come up at this time? First John is one of my favorite books, but I have to admit, preaching in it, I thought it would go a lot faster, but every time I come to a section, it's like, stop, consider. This is so much deeper than you could ever imagine. So is this one. And at verse 18, that just kind of gets put on mugs. In fact, this morning, I, I typed it into YouTube, listened to a bunch of people's sermons on it, and most of the people I heard on it were just completely off base because they weren't preaching in context. 
And they make the fear nebulous. They make the love nebulous. It is something specific. Loving each other in response to God's love is God's love perfected that drives out the fear of judgment. So today, if you have a fear of judgment, maybe you don't know the Lord. And today is the day of salvation. As we sing this last song, cry out to the Lord, he'll save you. Maybe it's an overactive conscience and that's okay. And you need to ask the people around you, am I growing in Christ? Or maybe you're holding unforgiveness. Maybe you have a bitter attitude. And you have so much hate and anger in your heart that your conscience is saying to you, this is not the way a Christian lives. Are you even saved? Jesus Christ, one of the very first things he taught was if you have your gift before you bring it to the altar, if you have something against your brother or they have something against you, make it right and then bring your gift. Forgiveness and love are not optional in the Christian life. By God's grace, the Holy Spirit will make your life miserable until you deal with it. So today, if you do have that, you don't have the assurance of salvation, one of those three things right there, as we sing this last song, examine your life. This is what I was doing this, this whole week. And you had the assurance of salvation. I wasn't holding on any unforgiveness, but I remember time in my life where I was. And luckily the Holy Spirit said something to me through somebody else or just through my heart so that I was perfected in love and perfect love drives out fear, fear of punishment. Worship team, please lead us in this final song.